0: Thank you, Jack. <clears throat> it's good to uh, be with you here this morning. Be together. Um, I feel festive with my green tie. That was kind of an accident, but um, I'm uh, happy to enjoy the the, the season. Um, I'm excited this morning to begin a study. We have done this really since the beginning of Faith Community Church twenty some years ago. Every two or three years we go over a study of the doctrines of grace. Uh, I don't think you could overstate the importance of these doctrines in the life of a church. They are a part of our DNA. They are who we are. They inform us in what we are to do, how we are to do it. I mean, these doctrines are so important to us as a church. And so every two or three years, we'd like to be reminded of these Um, We cover these doctrines in the new member class, but we do it in one class, and I have like 35 minutes, and I have to cover all five doctrines. So that's literally being sprayed with a fire hose of information. So we take some time every two or three years to a little more slowly go through these doctrines of grace. Now, some people come to this church... Because of the doctrines of grace. They're like, oh, I heard that church, and so they come here because of that very thing. We have people uh, that are just learning about these doctrines. They didn't know much about them before, but they're beginning to hear them and they've been thinking about them. We have some people that may have never heard about these doctrines before. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And frankly, there are some people who don't come to this church because. We believe these doctrines. So they're, they're very important for us to, to, to understand. They are called the doctrines of grace because they explain for us what grace really is. I hope even this morning when you walk away, if you haven't heard of these doctrines, you're going to walk away with a greater awareness of grace of what grace is. These doctrines are about our salvation. They, we use an acronym, TULIP, and each letter of the acronym stands for one of the five doctrines about our salvation. If you're unfamiliar with these or if you're learning, one of the things that might be helpful for you is to find in your Bible the, the white spaces where there's nothing written And make some notes, because there's going to be a lot of verses that we're going to be talking about, and it's helpful to have this kind of information handy where you could pull it up and be able to remind yourself of some very important things about biblical doctrine. Now, the study that we're doing this morning, we're known as a church that does expository preaching. And so when Jack was up here, he said, uh, I was going to begin a topical sermon. So we were like, whoa, whoa, what? Topical sermon? This is supposed to be expository preaching. Well, you can preach expositorily. Topical sermons, but we uh, are doing a, a unique study. We're taking a break from 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be studying it's a branch of theology that we would call systematic theology, in contrast to biblical theology. And I think it's important for you to understand what we're doing and the difference between the two because they're both very important. Systematic theology, well, think of, think of theology, all the things that the Bible teaches. Think of it as a really big mountain, because the Bible's a big book, 40 different authors, written many different people, different situations, different places, different languages, and it all comes together. It says a lot of things, so this is a big mountain of truth. Biblical theology looks at that truth like you start climbing up the mountain and you're looking at specific parts of the mountain, specific terrain of the mountain. So you go and you you study Moses and the Pentateuch or Genesis. I'm gonna study and I want to know what Moses says, or maybe you climb up farther and you start studying the prophets and what the prophets taught. Even how they interacted with Moses. And then you keep going up the mountain and you come to the Gospels and you, you want to know what the Gospels say, or what Matthew is. And we'll hear things like a, a Johannian view of Christ. We want to know, what did, what did John the Apostle teach us about Christ? So that's biblical theology. It's, it's studying the parts of the whole. Systematic theology would be like standing on the top of the mountain and, and looking at all of what the Bible says about these topics. So systematic theology would say, well, what does the Bible say about God? And it would make statements based upon his revelation to Moses and the prophets and the apostles. And it puts it all together. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible say about Christ? That's putting the big mountain together. And that's systematic theology. We wouldn't know everything about Christ that we know today without systematic theology. Because you can't go to one book of the Bible and, and it doesn't give us everything comprehensive about Christ or the Holy Spirit or God. We need systematic theology. Without systematic theology, our knowledge would be incomplete. They're not at odds with each other. It's not like, oh, systematics is good and biblical theology is bad. No, they are inseparable. They need each other. In fact, when you separate them and you don't see them as compatible, it can be dangerous. When I was in seminary, one of my professors Um, He is a New Testament professor, so that would be his focus, the the New Testament. And we were talking about Thessalonians. In particular, we were talking about the man of lawlessness, or what we would know as the Antichrist, and what Paul had said about him. And I said to him, I said, well, how does that square with what Daniel says about him? And I'll never forget his response. He said, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about Daniel. Now, If I'm a professor and my expertise is Pauline theology, that answer is acceptable. But if I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to be presenting the truth of God's Word about the man of sin, I can't say, well, I don't know what Daniel says. We need systematic theology. Systematic theology can be dangerous. Because a lot of times, those who will teach systematic theology, they get on top of the mountain and they make sweeping statements and they don't really take into account... The specifics, the biblical theology. Or I'll tell you what is worse you develop a systematic theology and then you make biblical theology fit your system. That's really dangerous, too. They need each other. We're going to do a systematic theology of our salvation. That's what the doctrines of grace are. They're going to give us a comprehensive picture of what the Bible says about our salvation. Now, we have been talking about, in the study of 2 Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul was a minister of reconciliation. He was going out into the world as a mouthpiece of God, as an ambassador for Christ, imploring people to be reconciled to God. We have been entrusted with that ministry of reconciliation. That's what we have been entrusted with. When we talk about the ministry of reconciliation, there is going to be clear intersectionality. It's going to be intertwined with salvation, the doctrines of grace. And so, to me, it's going to be fascinating as we look at these doctrines, we're going to see how they affect the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled. Well, we're going to study the Doctrines of Salvation, and it's going to tell us a whole lot about our reconciliation. It's going to tell us as reconcilers, when we go out into the world and, and preach the gospel to lost people, the Doctrines of Grace are going to tell us what exactly is at stake, what, what we're up against. So this morning, we're going to begin this study of the Doctrines of Grace. We're going to begin with the letter T the letter T, this is what the Bible teaches about man, about people, about humanity. You could call this a doctrine of man or theology of man. If you have attended church at all in your life, and someone asks you, well, what does the Bible say about man? Most people would be able to say, well, the Bible says we're sinners. That's pretty common knowledge. Yeah, I'm a sinner. In fact, we could go to Paul in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So our theology say, well, people are sinners, that's pretty revolutionary of and of itself. We live in a day and age that says people are basically good. That's not what the Bible says. It says they've all sinned. But what's interesting is that's not the only thing the Bible says. That's where systematic theology comes in. It's like, wait, it doesn't just say we're sinners. We could go, for example, to Jeremiah seventeen nine, where the Lord addresses Jeremiah the prophet, and he says to them about people, he says, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, now it's just a little more than sinner. The human mind is deceitful, and the Lord says it is more deceitful than anything else in the world. And that heart is sick. The the Net Bible, I like how it translates it, says the human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? Now we are getting a picture of just what the Bible means when it says we're sinners. We're in trouble. Or we could go to what David said in Psalm 51, And we learn a little more about what it means to be a sinner. Psalm 51, verse 5 David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is describing himself when I was born, I was born stained in iniquity, I was brought forth and conceived in sin. David is talking about this radical corruption of sin in human nature that happens at conception. David was born a sinner. When the Bible says all have sinned, we look at what all of Scripture says, yes, all have sinned because all are sinners. There's a a phrase, we are not sinners because we sin." We sin because we're sinners, by by nature. When When we talk about this theology, this doctrine of man, it is not just a creed. It's not just something we believe. This is experiential. This is real, live stuff. Every parent in this room knows You never had to teach your children to sin. You know that. They do it quite well. Sometimes appallingly well. You don't have to teach them to be selfish, angry, to steal, to lie. You know why you don't teach them that? Because they're born that way. We're born sinners. So Already, we could say, well, the Bible says we're sinners, but when we look at what all the Bible says, we start learning a whole lot more about what the Bible means when it says we are sinners. So just from a few passages, we've learned a great deal more. When we get on the mountaintop and we survey it all, theologians have tried to comprehensively summarize what does the Bible say about people, about man? And the T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. Now, total depravity sounds really bad. It sounds so bad that some people, when they hear that, immediately reject the doctrine of total depravity. They, they'll say, well, there are some people maybe that are totally depraved, like, rapists and serial killers. But most people aren't totally depraved. I'm certainly not totally depraved. And so they hear total depravity and they say, well, that can't be true. Largely because they don't understand what the Bible says or what we mean when we say Total depravity. So, what we're going to do this morning, I am going to just work through this message on total depravity, and I've got a series of questions—about three or four questions—that I'm going to ask and then and then answer. And the first question is very simple: What does total depravity mean? Because that's really important for us to, if we're going to say, okay, this is what the Bible says about mankind, about us. What does it mean total depravity? Total depravity does not mean that every person sins as badly as they could. That's not what it means. That's what it sounds like. But that is not what total depravity means. I would prefer a different word. I would use the word words total ruin total ruin. Man has been completely ruined by sin. The corruption of sin in the human heart, being born with sin, has resulted in total loss. Total inability. When my boys were young, we had this station wagon. We lived out in Platte City and... um, The station wagon, it was those dorky ones with the really long noses. I can't remember what it was for sure. but And it was parked in the driveway, and they wanted to do, I think, rollerblading or something in the driveway. And they said, could you move the car, Dad? And my brother was visiting at the time, and he goes, I'll move the car. And he got in the car, and he backed it up. Well, for some reason, he didn't put it in park. He comes in the house. The next thing we know is... I think Caleb, my oldest son, comes running into the house, and is like, Dad, the station wagon, you know, and I, was, I ran out, and I opened the door, just as I'm seeing it bounce down the hill, over the road, and boom, right into a tree. And it did the, it literally left a half moon on the, the I mean, when they pulled it out, the bunk, the whole engine was just smashed. So when you take a car like that, Mechanics look at it and they say, I can fix that. Or they say, No, it's totaled. They said it's totaled. You can't fix it. When we talk about total depravity, that's what we're talking about. We're totaled. You can't fix it. There's nothing you can do to wash away the stain of sin in your life. You're broken, it, it's beyond repair, totally ruined. I'm going to make Ephesians 2 our base, our home base. We're going to be looking at a lot of other passages this morning, but hopefully you'll be able to keep your place here because Ephesians 2 is an incredibly rich passage of Scripture. To get to chapter 2, we would go through chapter 1, which would remind us as Christians all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted by Christ. God. We have been forgiven by His blood. We have been lavished in, with grace. All of these incredible blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. When you come to chapter 2, it begins with the word and. And. With all these amazing, wonderful things that have happened to us in Christ, there's some additional information that we should know. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Here is Paul's systematic theology of humanity. He summarizes what the Bible says about people before their believers, and he says they're dead. 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 Now, that's a very strong word. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You're not lame. You're not weak. You're not crippled. You're dead. That's Paul summarizing for us what the Bible says about humanity. That's a systematic theology. And it would be the proper definition of total depravity dead, totally ruined, totally hopeless. In order for us to understand what it means to be spiritually dead, we, we need to have, kind of climb back down the mountain and start looking at what total depravity or being spiritually dead means. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to hold your place in Ephesians 3 and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Ephesians, leave Ephesians 2 and turn to Romans chapter 3, also a letter by the Apostle Paul. And it's here where we're really going to be able to understand why Paul would give this comprehensive statement of dead, dead. Now, obviously, they're not physically dead, right, because they're very much alive, but they're spiritually dead. And don't let that minimize, like, oh, they're just spiritually dead. To be spiritually dead is catastrophic. It's total ruination. It's total inability. Radical corruption of sin has totally incapacitated us spiritually. That's what it means to be dead. So when we look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, we're going to get a better understanding of what he means when he says we were dead. So... Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There's two, two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Greeks. So that means everyone. Everyone's under sin. Verse 10. As it is written... Where does Paul get this statement that everybody's under sin? From Scripture. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul makes this indictment against the human race, against people, Jew and Gentile, you and I. You're all under sin. You're all under the power of sin. Well, how do you know that, Paul? Because it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament. And he is a master systematic theologian. He takes at least eight different verses, passages, from the Old Testament, and he weaves them together to string up this indictment against all of humanity that we are under sin. This is going to help us Understand what it means to be dead in trespasses and sin. So let's just work through Romans 3 here, verse 10. To be a total ruin, to be totally depraved, means, verse 10, that sin has ruined us morally. Total depravity means that sin has ruined us morally. It's a total loss. Look at that. There is none is righteous. No, not one. What a decimating proclamation. There is none righteous. Not even one. They're morally ruined. The Lord, this is from uh, Psalm 14 that they, uh, Paul is quoting. The Lord's looking down upon the sons of men from heaven. He looks upon their hearts, and he says, There's, there's none righteous. There's not one of them. He repeats it, verse 12: all have turned aside, Romans 3:12, together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is total ruin, morally ruined. There's not one righteous. They don't do good. There's not a good one out there, not even one. Now, I've had this objection before. I've heard this talk before, and I've thought, no one has ever done any good? I mean, there's a lot of philanthropy out there. People do good. There's not one righteous person, and what about the good people that I know? My neighbor, the little old lady across the street, the the young man that opened the door for me, those are are, are good people, right? How can the Bible say there's none righteous, that people don't do any good at all? I want to answer that question um, three ways, because the Bible says there's we're morally ruined. There's not one righteous, none of us do good. And we say, well, I see people doing good. So-and-so seems to be like a really nice guy or gal. Well, there's three reasons for that. One, one is called common grace. Common grace refers to the reality that God has placed in society restraints that keep people from sinning as much as they want to. Parents are one of God's common graces to society because a parent's job is to keep their children from doing evil. They have a system of reward and punishment. If you do bad, you're going to get a spanking. And because of the fear of getting a spanking or getting in trouble or getting your Xbox taken away from you, you're like, I don't want to do that. But if that was gone, could you imagine a child that got to do whatever they wanted to do, whenever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it? Would that be a nice child? No, that is the making of a serial killer. They have no restraints. And I'm gonna tell you, there are some we're seeing those kind of children because parents are kind of hands-off and Kids are growing up with no restraints. It's incredible. Government imposed by God to restrain evil in a society. The other day, I had a police officer following me, and I just kept looking at the speed limit, just constantly, you know. Because when the police officers aren't there, you don't think about it, you just drive right along. But... Obviously, it's more than that. You have judges and uh, rulers and authorities. You, you break the law and you can go to prison. And I, I don't want to go to prison. If tomorrow morning, Kansas City Police Department and all the judges announced they're walking off the job, you would not want to go outside. It would be terror. Terror. You would stay at home, lock your doors, get the guns, mom, because we're going to protect ourselves. Because this place is going to get crazy. No law, no government, no police officers, no judges, no jails. That's, You know what anarchy is? Anarchy is when there are no laws in a society. And when anarchy happens, it's not a good thing. People die, businesses are looted, there are riots, it's terrible. But when law is there, when God puts government there, it restrains these people who would do these things if they could, but they can't do that. That's common grace. So all the people out there that look good, the Bible says, well, partly because God's keeping them from doing what they want to do. One of the reasons that uh, the old days seemed like the good old days is because there were more restraints in society. It wasn't because people were less evil. They just had less opportunity to do evil. Today, boy, one of God's judgments on a society is when he begins to systematically remove the restraints of evil on a society. That's his judgment. He lets people over to do what they want to do, and we are seeing it happen in our country And it's a scary thing. And we see more and more depravity. We see more and more manifestations of evil. Let me give you a perfect illustration of what happens when there are no restraints. The Internet. The Internet allows an individual in the privacy and darkness of their little world and room to indulge their perversions and fantasies virtually without restriction. And we are seeing in our own society right now this phenomenon of respectable businessmen, pastors, uh, grandfathers getting led to courthouses in handcuffs because they've been involved in child pornography. What? You see something? What is going on? It is because these men are able to indulge their deepest, darkest fantasies, and there are no restraints. They can do it in the quietness of their their mind, and it leads to absolute darkness. That's total depravity. Common grace keeps people from sinning as much as they want to sin or could sin. There's another reason why we look at people and say, well, they're good people. Um, I think it's Jerry Bridges. He calls it respectable sins. Nobody, I mean, only fools would say, I've never sinned. Of course we've sinned, but our sins aren't that bad. They're, they, you know, respectable sins. I was looking on his list. Um, Gossip, covetousness, crass materialism, discontentment, pride of life, self-righteousness, ingratitude. I mean, you start listing these things, and these are sins that, well, yeah, everybody does that. They don't seem that bad to us. They're not terrible sins. But when you look at Scripture, it is amazing. When you look at Scripture and the... The holy law of God and what God condemns and what God hates, these things that we think are respectable, God absolutely detests. Self-reliance, ingratitude, I bless you with all this stuff and you don't even stop to give me thanks? It's outrageous to God. Ingratitude. All of a sudden, when you look at our respectable sins that we don't think we're that bad to us, and we see how God views them. All those people we think are so good, all of a sudden, they're not quite so good at all. The fact is, lastly, good people. Here's what the Bible says about the good deeds that people do, because there are good deeds out there, philanthropy. The Bible says our good deeds to God are like filthy rags, So, Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is a very, very strong statement. Very graphic. I don't want to be crass, but I want to tell you what the Bible says about our good deeds Polluted garments is literally garments of menstruation. That's what it is in the Hebrew. They are defiled. They are ruined. Totally ruined. I don't care how much good you could amass. It's ruined. It's defiled by sin. And this isn't difficult for us. We can see things that are good, and, and but if they're ruined, it doesn't take a lot to ruin them. 2012. A 14-year-old boy was in a restaurant eating a roast beef sandwich until he bit into something that was chewy and rubbery. He spit it out, and it was part of a finger. I've checked it. This went through a finger. What they found out is that somebody in the back was slicing meat and cut their finger off, went to get it. Taken care of, and somebody just came up and thought they wanted to complete it, and somehow the finger ends up in the sandwich. I guarantee you, you wouldn't, if you found a finger in your sandwich, just say, Oh, it's ruined. Every bit of it is ruined. You throw it away as fast as you can. You would be repulsed by it. That's what the Bible says about our good deeds. God's that's ruined. It's filthy. If you get a box of Wheaties or Rice Krispies and you pour it out, and a rat's tail, you you don't just uh, you don't even just throw away the bowl. You throw away the whole thing. It's ruined. That's what the Bible says about our good deeds. If you think you're doing good and you've God must be so pleased, you are going to be so surprised because he's disgusted by our good deeds in our natural state. They are polluted by sin. Ruined. Total loss. We're morally ruined. Notice what else Paul says, back to Romans chapter 3, not only are we morally ruined, but to be dead in sin would also mean to be ruined mentally. Sin has ruined us mentally. Verse 11, no one understands. Again, this comes from Psalm 14 too. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Yahweh looks down upon the sons of men. Are there any who understand? There is no one. Literally, to understand means to bring together, to to bring together to understand, to compute, if you will. No one is able to understand. Man's intellectual capacity To understand spiritual things has been ruined by sin. Completely. You can't understand it. We can understand mathematical concepts. We can put two and two together and come up with four. We can understand political concepts, agricultural concepts, economic concepts. But man cannot understand spiritual realities. That's why Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says something like this. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You're talking to people about the gospel, and lost people hear that, and they can't compute it, and they say, that's stupid, that's foolish, I don't, I don't understand that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's spiritually discerned? The things of God are spiritually discerned. The natural man isn't able to process spiritual things. That has been ruined. Sin has ruined his capacity to understand spiritual realities. In the day, Adam, that you eat, you will die. And when he ate, he died spiritually His mind was no longer able to understand or compute spiritual realities. What's amazing to me is these are the truths that Paul himself believed and preached. And Paul was a minister of reconciliation. How does this work? People can't understand, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell them about Jesus and how to be reconciled to God through Jesus because of their sin, but they can't compute it. They don't understand it. I don't get that. How does this work? Well, we're going to learn about that. But we're not done yet. Sin has not only ruined us morally, not only ruined us mentally. Look at, again, verse 11. No one seeks for God. No one. We've been ruined spiritually. To be dead in your trespasses and sins means to be ruined morally, mentally, and spiritually. No one seeks after God. If you're morally ruined, you're born in sin, you're inclined to sin, you're mentally ruined, you can't understand spiritual things, the result is you're not going to seek after God. Again, this is experiential. We we know this is true. I think of parents. Parents, you can make your children go to church. You can't make them see God, can you? Can't do it. You can go out and you can tell people about Jesus Christ and the need to reconciliation, but you can't make them see God. It's something in the inner disposition, and they're not able to do it. Their sin has ruined us spiritually. This is the indictment on the human race. This is what Paul means when he said dead and trespasses and sin, ruin morally, ruin mentally, ruin spiritually. And again, this comes from Paul. Paul the minister of reconciliation. He is saying, I look at lost people and they're dead. That tells us something that when we are involved in the ministry of reconciliation, we're we're not dealing with hurting people, we're we're dealing with dead people. Think about that. We're dealing with people that are dead in trespasses and sin. Whether they're our children who are lost, or our neighbor, our co-worker, you're not dealing with people that are understanding, you're dealing with spiritual corpses. And that tells us the we are beginning to understand this nature of this ministry of reconciliation now that brings up second question second full question what is total depravity total depravity means we're totally ruined sin has ruined us and we just marshal up all the texts of Scripture, we come up to that conclusion. Mankind is ruined. Just like Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. What about free will? What about free will? So many Christians believe that reconciliation with God hinges on man's free will. I mean, it's just assumed. We go out into the world... We encounter lost people, we present them with the truth of Christ, the claims of Christ, their need for a Savior, and then we leave it to their decision to make up their mind. Are you going to follow Christ or not? And we hope that they would make the right decision to follow Jesus Christ. Well, if the assessment that we just concluded is true... Men are dead in their trespasses and sins. they're morally ruined, mentally ruined and spiritually ruined. That poses a problem for free will, doesn't it? It really does. But I'm not ready to just get rid of free will. I, I know a lot of times we Calvinists, we're, we rail on free will, but the truth of the matter is, I know I'm free. I'm not a robot, I'm not a puppet. I make decisions all day long. I make decisions of, hey, let's have a steak. Last, last night I called my son up because he brought the steaks. I said, hey, you want to have one of your steaks this, this evening? That was, I, I wasn't coerced in that. I did that. And I, I'm going to figure out what I'll do for lunch this afternoon. I make decisions all the time. I am not a robot or a puppet. We all know that. And I don't think it's helpful to rail against free will. Because we wouldn't. Have, it was like I, It's not like God is pulling all my strings here. I am, I, I make I'm a rational human being making decisions. The Bible actually has a great deal to say about free will, and I'm glad you're turning there. Ephesians two helps us. So if we go back to Ephesians two, we can see what the Bible says about man's will. Free will. Free will is technically wrong, but experientially accurate. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins or in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, they're dead spiritually, we got that, but physically they are very much alive. In fact, they're quite busy. We were very busy following. It's so funny when I hear people in the world talk about being free thinkers. They're all following They're following the course in the world. You see these teenagers come up and rebelling against their parents. I'm free thinking. No, you're not. You're following. Look what you're following. You're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. But notice it says we are actually living. We lived in the passions of our flesh Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see the word desires there, thelema in the Greek. You know what desires is? Thelema is will. The will. To will. To want. What were we doing when we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Well, we were living in the desires of our flesh, carrying out The will of the body and the mind. You know what we were doing? Exactly what we wanted to do. We loved our sin. And we're not very interested in the things of God. We're not seeking after the things of God. We're seeking after money, houses, possessions, sex. That's what we're seeking. That's what we want. When you look at the Bible, free will doesn't save anyone. It condemns us all. It condemns us all. Every one of us in this room know that before God saved us, we weren't seeking Him. We we had other things on our agenda. I think of the Apostle Paul. like He's on his way to persecute the church. This is what he wants to do. And then he meets God and God changes him. Now he's doing something totally different. Free will doesn't save us. Free will condemns us. From a biblical perspective, free will is one of the massive problems that man has. They are doing what they want to do, and it's leading to their damnation. So when we talk about total depravity, really the essence of total depravity is simply this, that in terms of coming to Christ in repentance and faith, people aren't going to do it. Because if they're left to their free will, they're... they're, Heart and mind are ruined by sin. They're not seeking after. They're not interested in the things of God. And again, this isn't just a creed. This isn't just theology that we believe. If you go outside of these doors, if you're around lost people right now, you experience that. You see that. They're not interested in what you have to say. They could be here this morning. They would much rather be sleeping in. This is not what is important to them. Their problem is their will. That's their problem. What about me? What about you? That's my last. This is where we're going to close. That's the assessment of lost people. That was the assessment of humanity. But what about me? What about you? Because I sought after God. I wanted forgiveness of sins. I called out upon the Lord and have continued to call upon the Lord, and I'm I'm seeking Him. We come here to see why are we different than the rest of humanity? Well, Paul says of the Ephesians, they were dead. So are you and I. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're part of the human race. We were dead. Why do we understand? Why do we seek after God? And there there are two words the most heavy two words in all the Bible. Right there in verse 4, after telling us who we were, we were dead, we were morally, mentally, spiritually ruined, children of wrath, says, but God. But God. After I got married bought a little house in Platte Woods. the one question that kept burning in my mind was, why am I a Christian? Lived in a neighborhood none of my neighbors were Christians. Am I a Christian because my dad was a pastor? Am I a Christian because I'm obviously smarter than these people and chose Jesus. Am I a Christian because I'm a good person, that I'm not as bad as these people? Those were thoughts that were running in my mind, but I knew enough of the Bible to say, those aren't good thoughts. Why am I a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why? Were you presented in you with your intellectual capacities? So this is a good deal, I'm going to follow it. Were, were you just born with a heart that just loved God and you're always... The Bible tells us there's only one reason why you or I are a Christian. But God. But God. It has nothing to do with us. In fact, our position has already been described, if you go back to verse 3, it says, we were... By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you're a Christian, it wasn't because you were any better. Or because God saw a little more spark of goodness in you. All of humanity is under His indictment. But God, this verse, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We were dead. Don't think it's an accident that there's this juxtaposition between you were dead and now you're alive. That is not by accident. Dead people cannot contribute anything to being made alive. There is nothing in them. They can't make a decision. They can't act upon it. They're dead. What is required for a dead person is resurrection. What is required to make a dead person come alive is regeneration, new birth, new creation. But God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which He loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, He made us alive. By grace, you are saved. That's grace. I'll tell you this until you understand what the Bible says about man and their natural condition, you will not understand grace. I didn't understand grace. And I can tell you this is very personal to me because when I understood for, for the first time the but God, when I understood that. I was a Christian not because I was smarter, not because I was born in a pastor's home, not because I was better, but simply because God chose to have mercy on me. It was the first time in my life that I remember consciously, heartfeltly, affectionately worshiping for the first time. For the first time, In my life, I had professed to know God, I believed in God, but when I understood that, I worshipped God. A God that would make me alive? Why? Why me? And anytime you ask the question, why me? Why am I here? The answer always goes back, to who God is and not who you are. It is because He is rich in mercy and He loved you a great deal. That's why by grace you're saved. Some of you know this doctrine and you've heard it maybe a hundred times, but I hope you never get tired of hearing it is by grace you have been saved because of His great mercy, because He loved you. God made alive. This is what we call monergism. God alone acts. God works on it. So when Lazarus is in the tomb and Jesus comes and he says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus didn't do anything to contribute to his resurrection. He responded to the command of Jesus Christ to be made alive. And that's what happens to us. This is why Jesus will say in John 3, you have to be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do you get born again? It's a work of the Spirit. You don't command the Spirit. When you understand total depravity and what the Bible says about us, you understand grace. why it's called the doctrine of grace. You know what the doctrines of grace do for us? They shouldn't puff you up. They humble you. You say, why me? Why me? If you understand total depravity, you don't walk into church doors with a chip on your shoulder, looking around saying, well, I'm sure i know i'm sure they're glad i'm here when you understand total depravity you walk into the church and you say what am i doing here i don't belong here this is who who am i to be here cuz if i were left to myself it would not be a pretty picture but god being rich in mercy with great love made us Alive, Paul, after he completes chapter 3, talking about all of this glorious salvation, he says, hey, I want you to walk worthy of your salvation. You know what he says in verse 2, how to walk worthy of your salvation? You walk with all humility. Pride is not becoming a child of God. You walk with humility. We're going to close this morning by singing that great hymn, And Can It Be? I think that's a fitting way to close. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Is it possible? Why? Why would I gain an interest? Why would God make me alive? And how do you know if you're alive? How, How do you know? Well, I'll tell you what being made alive looks like. It begins with a conviction of sin. You will have a maybe overwhelming sense of worthlessness, that you are a sinner, that you cannot measure up. God is stirring you. He is beginning to prod you. He is beginning to poke you. And to be made alive means to be born again so that when you hear the gospel message, you say, I believe that. That's true. I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. And by believing it, you've evidenced you've been being made alive. Because you couldn't believe it without being made alive. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I believe, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You've been made alive and you've been made alive because God is rich in mercy and he loved you with a very great love. And you walk out here this morning knowing that God has been merciful to you and he loves you with a very special love. You can take on just about anything that you need to take on this day or this week. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Matt, if you guys would come up, and we'll close in that. Father, why don't everybody stand with me? Father, uh, it is a dark picture of what the Bible says about people. It's It's not flattering. The indictment against humanity is we're shut up. Our mouths have been stopped. We have no more excuse. We are a sinner. We are totally ruined. We can't fix ourselves. All our good deeds are like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can contribute to our salvation. We're dead. And the sooner you realize you're dead, the sooner you realize that you can't do anything, the quicker you can call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and say, You must save me. Save me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I urge you today, be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, you know Christ. Man, I just want you to just meditate. God being rich in mercy, in which with great love in which he loved you, he made you you alive. You are special. You are unique. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these truths. May you bless them and not return to you void. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.